My dad took me fishing a lot when I was a kid, something he loved. He is a quintessential sportsman. Um, my brother, likewise, loved fishing, loved the outdoors. I, however, get bored very easily and do not have the attention span required for hunting and fishing. But nevertheless, I would always go with him. He would take me fishing, and I wasn't a huge fan. You had to learn so many things. You had to avoid stepping on the side of the river, on the ground. You had to avoid large, quick movements. You had to avoid passing your shadow over the river. You had to get special glasses to see so that the sun wouldn't blind you and you could see the fish. You had to learn how to tie a hook on a string. These were all hard for me, but I was notorious for getting my line stuck in the trees. Notorious for having to snap them off and ask my older brother to go into the water and get it out of the bushes. But no doubt the Apostle Peter knew how to fish. We know from the Gospels that he was a fisherman. That was his trade. That was what he had done. He, I believe that he inherited it from his father. His father owned the fishing trade. He fished with his brothers. Three of the other apostles were also fishermen. Something common that they had. They fished together. They worked together. And he may not have used a Zebco rod and reel, as we would understand, with a fancy lure on the side or on the end, but he had experience fishing. He learned from his father how to fish. He grew up watching other men around him fish. He also saw some men who would bait and lure fish in illegally. He saw men who would lie to tax officials about just how much they caught. He saw men who would do all the tricks and all the fancy things to avoid having to tell the truth in order to gain a little bit more for their livelihood. And when the Lord made him a fisher of men, as we know from the Gospels, Christ tells him he's a fisher of men. When he did that, Peter took his knowledge and his understanding into his Christian walk. And I can be very certain that he also saw some of those same wrong tactics in the teachers that we're looking at, in some of these false teachers that would come into a church and seek to entice and hook and draw people away from the gospel. He may have noticed the very same ideas, the very same words that these false fishermen and poachers would use as the false teachers would use them. So if you can join with me, please, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Um, we'll be, be, we will be beginning halfway through the verse, as the verse kind of splits in the middle with a sentence. So if you'll join me in the second half of it. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Bold, brash, and daring, and all in a bad way, these arrogant teachers seek not only... They seek only to pleasure themselves in the end. Like the crafty poachers that Peter remembers, these men cared nothing for the authorities that they would have to report to about how much they caught. These men care nothing about the authority in the church as well. I remember some of my dad's co-workers or my brother's friends who would laugh at the game wardens. They would do tricks like hiding fish in the river on, on uh, strings. They would hide them, and then they would fish from a different area. They would switch tags with each other. They would uh, try to hide what they'd been doing in order to catch more fish and be illegal. 
And then I also remember growing up and my dad was extremely afraid of even being caught downwind of anything illegal by a game warden. He was very upset if my brother would try something like his friends would, if he would try to hide a fish or if he would try to switch a tag. And my dad had a very reverent fear for the authorities. And these teachers that are false teachers, we can see that they don't care about authority, whether it's in the church or whether it's the authority of God or the higher authorities of angels. And in fact, they blaspheme angels. They talk against them. They laugh at the majesty behind created angels. <clears throat> well, in the first half of verse 10, we see that they despise authority. And they add to their despising these angels and the church and God. They revile and rail on angels, which, Peter notes, the angels don't even do about the false teachers. They have more manners, even though angels are stronger, even though they've been around for thousands of years, even though they're more intelligent, angels are wary about bringing indictment against these false teachers. They leave it up to the Lord, and they understand that it's his duty to judge and his duty to bring judgment. These teachers are like animals, pursuing animal tendencies. If you'll join in verse 12, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Animals, as we know, kill and consume, and therefore the majority of their life is being killed and being consumed. This can be seen more in our fishing analogies, as I'll be going back and forth to them. A huge irony that I've always thought about in fishing is that you use food to catch food. And you take a small piece of bread, this will catch a small fish. Then you take the small fish and this will catch a medium-sized fish. And then you take the medium-sized fish and you catch the bigger fish. You're always using food to catch food. And I never understood that, I just wanted to keep eating the bread. But that's the way fishing works. Fish are attracted to smaller fish. There's also the practice of chumming, where fish bits are chopped up and tossed in the ocean and then all the animals come and eat them and consume this meal. They're attracted to it and in being attracted to it, they are caught by the fishermen. This is what pushes a false teacher. They take the word of God, they take teaching and they twist it. They present to the church food bits of morsel, and then before we realize it, before people who are hooked realize it, it's nothing but them using people to catch people. Yet false teachers deny basic truths about the Bible. They deny pursuing God. They use the word of God, the pulpit, and the congregation as something that they can reach into and greedily gain from. This happened in Peter's day, and it also happens today. It's kind of like a, a trick they use in Africa. Some missionaries I know, they take a jar and then they put some spikes in the jar. And then they put food in the jar. And then a monkey will come along and the monkey will reach into the jar, find the food, can smell it, and then grab it. But in grabbing it, it realizes that it can't pull its hand out while grabbing it. And 
monkeys, you'll just see them walking around the jungle carrying these jars. Just, they can't climb, they can't run, they just continue to carry these jars, not understanding that by releasing it, they can have their hand freed. And this is one of the best tricks for the hunters to go after them and find them. Uh, they'll be caught unable to run, unable to climb, unable to jump, and um, they're caught. <clears throat> so, our first point today about how to be the church in light of Second Peter, um, trying to teach through these verses on false teachers is a little hard because Peter is talking to a specific type of people, but I still believe that it's important to draw something for us to be encouraged and something for us to kind of do, something for us to walk away with. So part of that is our first point, to be aware of the bait that false teachers can use to lure us in, to lure you in. Be aware of the things that false teachers can have as open doors, avoiding yourself being caught. As verse 13 says, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reviling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They will earn the just rewards for the work that they have done. Back in verse 13, or 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. When the church would gather in the first century, the people Peter was writing to, they would have this large feast, they would have this meal, and then they would also have communion at, at the meal. So um, communion and the meals would kind of be joined together, happening at the same time. And eventually enough slander happened where to avoid being talked to, uh, negatively about what they would do at these love feasts. People would say, oh, they're having these feasts at night where they consider each other brother and sister. They go there and they eat flesh and drink blood. They avoided all this and moved these feasts to the daytime and left it more out in the open. It's hard to be reviled against if you're doing something out in the open and uh, people can see that it's not actually you eating flesh and drinking blood. However, these false teachers use this event, use this love feast as opportunities to come in and practice their game. They practice their adultery. They practice drunkenness. They practice enticing others away. <clears throat> they party during the love feasts. They get drunk off the wine that is there for communion. Against even the moral climate of the Roman world around them, what even the Romans said was good to do and bad to do, they did the things that were bad. They act out. They would go from group to group, click to click, table to table, and they would bring up these specific doctrines. They would bring up their positions of what they believed. And like a poison, they would use it, throw a little in somebody's cup and say, hey, have you heard about this? Did you know that this is happening? Did you know that you don't have to worry about this? They would begin to introduce these teachings and lead people astray. While the communion and meals that we share, whether it's our meals that we have after church some days or before church, or whether it's the communion table, they're a little bit different than what they did in the first century. But we do have a coffee room here. 
we do have that room where we have the coffee and all the tasty pastries. And we put that in there and we invest in that as a church so that that can be a place for us uh, to grow and gather in fellowship, whether it's a, a little small token of joining for us together. Uh, we have it there and available. So with that comes something that we should be watching out for, something that we can learn about from, or from Peter and these love feasts. And that is when we have times of fellowship, whether it's meals or whether it's in the morning with coffee, be aware of people that are coming in and leading others astray during these times. There are people that might come in for one day. They might come in just on that day and see, oh, we can sit in the coffee room and have discussions and talk about things. And as a church, I think this is one of the more practical ways that we can look out for people who are saying they're part of a church coming in and trying to lead people astray. Whatever they're talking about doesn't necessarily matter, but as a church, we should be aware of those people who come in during times of fellowship and seek to divide us as a family. They are false teachers. They have eyes full of desire. Their motto goes back to continually being greedy, searching for more and more with this insatiable lust for things and people. They look for those that they can take to bed. They seek out unstable believers. Whether new believers or doubting or struggling believers, they look for them. And they seek to hook and lure them away. And the word Peter uses here for entice is actually the reason that I'm using so many fishing analogies because that is the word for a hook, to entice, to catch. That is a fishing term used that he brings into the conversation. So it's not just a, a picture that I'm thinking up, but it's something that he's actually trying to illustrate. This word means to catch and hook. Our next point on how to be the church is for those of you who are more stable, those of you who have been Christians for a while, those of you who truly trust and depend on Christ, who are reading your Bible and growing, come alongside other believers in the church. Come alongside them and encourage and lift them up. If the false teachers look for unstable people, then one of the ways to combat that is for those who are stable to help those who are unstable. I think it's fairly obvious. But the opposite of an unstable person is, I believe you would agree with me, is a, a well-trained and professional person. Somebody who knows exactly what they're doing, knows how to do it, and is well-practiced in their art. Well, that's what these false teachers are. The Bible here says that they are trained in greed. Trained in greed. The word trained is actually where we get the, our word gymnasium from. So it's an athletic word. They are Olympic athletes at deceiving people. They're professional athletes at looking like Christians, at looking like teachers of truth. This is what they work on. This is what they perfect. Through mastery of deceit, they used to write letters. They used to go to the cities of the first century and speak to the churches. Wonderful things. Now, for us, these teachers might write books, hold very large tent revivals, they may fill stadiums and produce their own TV shows. Their words may sound Christian. They may look Christian. But under the surface, they're not Christian. So, as another way of warning, be careful who you listen to, who you read, and who you watch. 
verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own, his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These teachers have left the correct way of leading others and teaching God's word. They became led away as Balaam was, and they follow his path of service. However, thinking about Balaam and reading about him, it kind of seemed like he was an upright guy. If we would look in Numbers 22, where his story comes from, you read through it, and it seems like he's actually pretty good. He is sent to curse Israel, and instead he blesses them. He even has some very high and lofty words. In verses 16 to 17 of Numbers 22, he says, And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please, stay here tonight that you may know what the Lord will say to me. Then at the end of chapter 22, he says, Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Yet after this, in Numbers, there's nothing explicit about what he does following this event. And from this, we would say, well, he sounds exactly like a good prophet. He's worried about speaking out against God. He won't curse Israel. He even says, I can only speak the words that God tells me to speak. That sounds very noble. Yet, other books in the Old Testament tell us that after this, Balaam went, and instead of cursing Israel, he believed that if he taught them how to indulge in food and sex, if he taught them how to worship other gods, if he led them astray that way, that he wouldn't have to curse them. In fact, they would go so far from God that God himself would be the one that would have to discipline them. And surely enough, that's what happens. In Numbers, the book, he says the right things. Even sacrifices the right way. He talks about seven bulls, and he does everything perfectly. He even apologizes and seems repentant. But it's clear from other passages that he indeed did lead Israel into sin and away from God. And then Peter, drawing on this, says that that's what these false teachers are doing. Looking perfect. Looking good. Doing everything right. They know the order of worship. They know how to play the songs. They know how to do everything. Yet, in the end, they're still seeking for what they can get out of the church. They're still seeking to lead people astray. Verses 17 to 19. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Springs are, as we all know, a source of life 
to weary travelers. Especially in the first century, it's a source of lifestyle to farmers and people who are caretakers over animals. Without water, they will not only lose their flocks, their jobs, but also their lives. The word of God is also likened to a spring that will flow continually. Christ himself is the water which gives eternal life. But these teachers are different. They don't drink from the well of Christ. They don't even allow mist from the word to fall on the ground. If it would rain, if it would fail to rain for a few days, the farmer and the sheep can get through that. If they're in a drought, they can still find some wells, find some water. And what would happen is sometimes there would be the hope of the morning mist. At least that would leave a little layer of liquid for the plants to soak in. At least that would leave a little bit of hope to get through the next day. But Peter likens the false teachers to the kind of people who say, here's some mist for the ground, for your weary travelers. Here's some liquid, what you need for life. And yet they come along promising this mist, promising this life, and they drive it away by a storm. What would happen is the mist would come in, and then there was a, the word he uses here is a word for a, a sudden gust of wind by a storm, or uh, a squall of wind where it would come and wipe this mist away before it even touches the ground. And then what it would leave behind is this crisp, dry, arid, hot air. Peter is talking about these teachers leaving behind the promise of water and instead giving just hot, dry air. Peter himself adds some very scathing words to these teachers by reminding his readers that there is an utter gloomy darkness waiting for those who follow the path of Balaam. It's like he's saying that there is a special dining table just for these teachers where reservations have made reservations have been made on behalf for them, except the restaurant is hell and it's not a place I would want to eat. Some other Bibles translate the words that they use, how they speak, how they teach. They call them loud boasts of folly or high-sounding but empty words. We get the idea that these teachers not only will puff themselves up as either experienced in spiritual matters, whether they've received personal revelation from the Lord or whether they've looked at the Bible and they said, that's not what it means. God has told me what it means or whether they depend on something they've done in the past, or whether they depend on their many degrees in studying and teaching the Bible. They will use words that have no true root or biblical meaning. They will use things to kind of confuse and lead astray the church. They use these lofty words, but they don't ground them in truth. They don't ground them in an agreeable definition of the word, or what they even mean. They'll use words like blessings, repentance, gifts of God, grace, love, and they'll define it how they want to define it and not how the Bible defines it. Take, for example, a very, very prominent pastor in Texas. When asked why his church and his teaching never has in it the word repentance, he explains, well, to repent means to change your mind. In the Greek, it means to change your mind. He's correct. That's what it means. 
And then he switches the definition of what the word means to explain. In our church, in our congregation on Sundays, people come in, and a lot of people will change their mind and leave, knowing that they're now a better person. And he says that that means that they've repented. But that's not what the term means. They'll use terms and change the meaning. And this is something we should be careful about, something we should be aware of. The false teachers, as fishermen, entice with baited hook those who are not solid in the faith. They are willing to use bait, which people crave, things that we want. In fact, what do most people want out of life? If we tapped into the fundamentals, I think we would be able to say, well, better health. I want enjoyment. I want just a little bit more money, maybe double of what I make now, just a little bit more. Well, the false teachers are more than willing to promise to you these things as long as you follow them, as long as you listen to them, as long as you support them. They will promise freedom, riches. They will promise you anything. God's healing over your various ailments, over your bum knee. They'll promise the Spirit falling on you. They'll promise miraculous things done in your life if you give to their ministries. They'll promise you these things. And certainly health and money are good, and God can bless his people with them. But this leads us to our next point on how to be the church. Beware of teaching that is more pleasing you than it is pleasing God. I think that's a fair um, thermometer to understand false teaching. If it's teaching that ignores God and Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and instead talks about how you can be blessed. Void completely of the mention of them, of the mention of the sacrifice for your sins. Be wary of that. Now, as mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, these teachers will look for weaker Christians. They like to have an easier catch than the fish that know that hook's not real, that bait's not real they'll pass them up. Those older fish are so hard to catch, but those little ones are really easy. But then you have to throw them back. But the teachers, the false teachers, are more than willing to snatch up little fish. They go for people who are not meeting regularly on, in church. They go for people that are um, letting it go, saying next Sunday, next Sunday, next Sunday, foregoing fellowship. They look for people who are struggling with pain, struggling in financial situations, struggling with questions and doubts. Instead of seeking to help them out, they look to gain from them. And then they also look for people who are new to the Christian faith. They're looking for those who are fresh off of living like the world. Like in Peter's time, churchgoers may have, as Christianity is new, relatively new, uh, in the first century, just... 50 years old. Odds are a lot of these people are coming completely from a pagan background into a very new thing, which is Christianity. And they're learning how to make all these breaks from their old living, whether they stopped drinking, whether they stopped engaging with the temple prostitutes, whether they stopped deceiving their partners that they worked with, whether this was the first time that they learned to go a day without lying, whether any of their sins would stop. Sorry, whether they um, 
tried to learn how to live as a Christian. They're fresh off doing these things. But we can tell that the list can go on and on of old habits that are dying hard or maybe they're hardly dying in these new Christians' life. Along comes teachers who tell them that they can enjoy and embrace the things that they recently thought they weren't able to enjoy or embrace. In the midst of fighting against their sin, a holy teacher, in parentheses, comes along and promises them freedom from guilt. Don't worry about your sin. It's okay to live in error. And so swiftly, these teachers will grow a following of people. And if you follow a teacher who is themselves corrupt, you will only receive the corruption which comes from them. They search for people who are still enslaved to their sins and their follies. They teach them so that they that they teach in a way so that the people who are trying to break from sin are never actually able to break from it. And sadly, their followers, while appearing to be out of the muck, whether or not they have a new suit or whether or not they curse a little bit less, they still remain enslaved to a life of sin and desires. The teaching of false teachers is filled with irony in this point because they teach freedom. Most of the time they teach um, grace, they teach love, they teach these puffy words. Yet they themselves are slaves. They themselves are corrupted. They themselves are plagued with sickness. They themselves are plagued with sexual sin. And most of them today are plagued with tax evasion, trying to make more money. They are not just still enslaved, though. Whether the next section of verses talks about new people coming to the faith and falling away, or whether it talks about the teachers. Either way, the points can be the same. So, verse 20 to 21. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. I mentioned to you earlier that I had a knack for getting my hook stuck in the trees, getting it stuck under rocks, getting it stuck pretty much everywhere, especially on fellow fishermen and my dad's friends. I would swing my reel around trying to cast it and would somehow get the hook lodged into some part of my body, maybe my elbow or my shoulder, somewhere usually back here or somewhere in the hands. And you can imagine that the way a hook is shaped, a curve, and then there's a little barb at the end so that it's easier to go deeper for a hook. It's easier for a hook to go in more, but it's a lot harder for the hook to come out. So the worst injuries of hooking myself came when I believed I had, in fact, gotten the hook loose from my body. If it's back here, I pull it out, and then I think, oh, it's just still stuck in the clothes. And then, of course, I begin to proceed with my backstroke on the cast, only to discover halfway through it that with an intense amount of pain, I was worse off than I started. That's how I imagine this verse can be illustrated. I don't know if it's what Peter means, but it's a very good illustration. Teachers and Christians, 
people in church thinking that they have in fact freed themselves from the sins that have beset them begin to abuse grace and pulling back the real throw it forward not realizing that they're still hooked as these teachers are still deceived whether it's about them or the people whether it's about the teachers or the peoples it makes sense both ways in talking about people who have tasted the word of God and fallen away Hebrews 6 7 to 8 says for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God but if it bears thorns and thistles it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned there are those in the church who take the word of God who take the teaching of Peter and they use it as water they use it as help assistance they use it to get them by but what they grow from it is not the fruit of a Christian instead it is the vines and the thorns of a destructive path they receive the common title as a Christian they look like Christians but they don't bear fruit in that name they only bear thorns and thistles and then also for these teachers Christ warns his followers in Matthew 18 that it would be better for a millstone a very large stone with a little hole in the middle of it it'd be better for a millstone to be tied around their neck and have them thrown in water than for them to lead little ones astray particularly children but I would I would think it's the same for those that are new in the faith after saying this talking about them falling away and having it be better that they had never learned the path or the right way Peter continues on and relates a small proverb in proverb or in verse 22 what the true proverb says has happened to them the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire a dog will return to its vomit in a really disgusting way Peter introduces this attitude to that kind of person in the in the church or that kind of teacher that goes back to their enslaving sin believing the hook is out they go back to lodging it deeper they don't just mind the taste of the sin it's comfortable and in fact in the case of vomit they enjoyed it once already odds are they'll enjoy it again but the proverb about the pig is a little different because it doesn't come from the Bible and nobody knows the source Peter throws it in there and it fits we know that pigs wallow in mud for multiple reasons we know that maybe they use it for cooling off mainly kind of like sweating maybe they use it as a type of sunscreen after all they have very pink skin I feel like that would burn up all the time if you spend all the time in the Sun but they're rolling in the mud it's just something that we know pigs do now a pig who is used to reveling or who used to revel in rolling in the mud who used to love being dirty and outside they feel choked when clean they feel uncomfortable they'll find it much easier to go back to the dirt and continue living life the way they always had so our last point and my personal challenge to you as the church is to 
be aware of the sins that enslave you and actively avoid them. Be aware of the mud and the vomit that you used to engage in, the things that attract you. Not being caught up in sin makes it harder for a false teacher to find something to smother you with. But even more so, it helps us to be reminded of some things from Peter's first letter. He urges us to fight against our sins. He urges us to be holy and to pursue righteousness and living like God, being truthful. And I leave you with that this week, an encouragement to fight against sin, the sins in your life, knowing that Christ has washed them, has washed us as pigs. He's cleaned us up, taken the dirt and the vomit that was our old way and removed it from us. Sometimes there's, there was hooks that were lodged so deep I had to humble myself and ask my dad or my brother to help get them out. And that, of course, was the most embarrassing moment, but if I hadn't done that, I would still have the hook left in me. And today, if you don't feel clean, don't feel like you've been washed, come to Christ as Savior. Come to Him as the giver of faith, as the God who can make you whiter than snow. As Peter tells us time and time again, we are to grow and learn more and know Him as our Lord and Savior. To sum up our points, beware of those that false teach beware of those things that false teachers use to lure you in. Beware of people that lead others astray during times of fellowship. Come alongside unstable and young believers and encourage and lift them up. Beware of teaching that is more about pleasing you than pleasing God. And be aware of the sins that trick you, the sins that hook you, the sins that ensnare you and actively avoid them. In keeping with that, we approach this table, the communion table, not as a pig trough where we come to it week after week, take the bread and the juice and say, it doesn't matter to me, and then turn around and continue in our sinful ways. That's not what it's for. This is the love feast that we have of believers. At this table, we come as a family to remember that which Christ has done in paying for our dirt, in removing our sin and wiping us clean.